0: But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should, should have always won. or. But I really gave it my all, so that for me is enough. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. We are in the midst of a frantic part of the tennis schedule. There are so many tournaments going on this week. We're here to talk about the four or five that happened last week. But before we get into all of that, we're going to talk about one bit of news, which for some may be a little bit trivial and not like super important, but it informs the title of this episode and will play a part later on throughout the episode. And that is the fact that Mario Saka has retired from tennis at the age of 24. In her statement that she released on Instagram, she said, quote, I am retired from playing tennis. It was a journey which I didn't enjoy ultimately, but I'm grateful for all the memories and support I've gained and received over the years from the sport. I'm moving on now so you can look forward to new fun projects upcoming in the future. The title of this episode is... A journey which I didn't enjoy ultimately. <laughs> I thought it was one of the best phrasings
1: that I've heard in forever. It's unusual to see that type of candor in a retirement speech or retirement statement. It's a good lesson to learn how to make clean breaks with things, with parts of your life or jobs you've had that you ultimately didn't enjoy. Luckily for Mari, she discovered this at age 24 she's super young. To us, she's young. She has her whole life ahead of her. Go do something you do enjoy. You know, doing the body surf for almost seven years,
0: it wasn't a, an experience I enjoyed. <laughs> you know, ultimately. I, I did
1: have to think about it, but I think ultimately I did, I do enjoy it. <laughs> not, Not all the time. And it's timely too,
0: because her name pops up here announcing her retirement. But we also have this ongoing discussion in tennis about the merits of giving out wild cards to folks who don't deserve them maybe a bit unkind to mention this in the same breath as her retirement but mario saka was one of those players who folks pointed to as being undeserving of some of the wild cards that she received
1: over her career right and we talked about wild cards last episode and the the nepotistic aspect of it she was also an img player so she got that wild card from miami that ruffled some feathers all the luck in the world to her
0: In her next endeavors, I'm sure she'll have stuff on the horizon that she'll enjoy much more than tennis, (laughs) ultimately. To less heartwarming news, Nikolos Bachelashvili won a tournament. Didn't just win a match, but won a whole-ass tournament.
1: Yes, so the Georgian has, uh, if you haven't heard, he's been in and out of court over the past year after being charged with domestic abuse against his ex-wife. He's currently out awaiting trial. The trial's been delayed a few times. And he's since the COVID break, he went 2-14, and 14, right? He was stringing together long stretches of losses, couldn't win a match. And out of nowhere, he wins Doha beating RBA, beating the returning Roger Federer. And I would like to limit the amount of time that we give to this gentleman. He- sure, fine.
0: Limit the time you give to him, but direct that attention to the ATP. Mm-hmm. Because, again, this is something that the ATP has not addressed. And they made the delineation, the distinction between... I mean, it was an inference. You had to read between the lines. When the whole Zverev thing broke, they said that we are going to let that play out in the courts where if somebody is charged or whatever and convicted, then that's something that we will tend to. Well, listen, like this man, like you said has been in and out of the courts he's been charged he's awaiting trial and it's been complete radio silence from the ATP and like we said when we talked about this Verve story any professional sporting organization worth a lick with any credibility in 2021 is going to have something to say more than
1: a toothless statement like they've given right. on both in both situations Most of the big sporting organizations have put together domestic violence policies over the past decade. You know, the NFL is a good example of uh, an organization that did a terrible job, didn't protect survivors or their players, and have put together a pretty rigorous policy with, with the input of experts in the field. The ATP hasn't. I think they're relying on the fact that their players are not employees, but independent contractors. They feel that they're uh, treading on rocky legal ground, which I can't really speak to that much. But this sort of thing, uh, without a domestic violence policy, could fall under their conduct contrary to the integrity of the game provision in the ATP rulebook. They're relying pretty hard on part of this rule that says a player convicted of violation of criminal or civil law may be deemed to have engaged in conduct contrary to the integrity of the game of tennis. Now, that's one example of things that could be contrary to the game of tennis. Others are, you know, any sort of aggravated behavior, anything that would damage the reputation or integrity of the ATP or the sport itself. So it's not limited to people who have been convicted in criminal trials. But I think they're they're hinging their response on that and hoping this stuff kind of goes away. And clearly it's not. More things keep coming up. It had gone away. And
0: then Zverev's situation arose. And so that brought Basilashvili back into the limelight a a little bit. A little, because he's not a superstar, right? But then he was losing. So when you're losing, nobody's paying any attention to you, right? And so now that Basilashvili has won a tournament, a pretty um, notable tournament, and beaten somebody like Federer along the way, like he was being watched by millions of people. Because he played Federer, right? His mm-hmm. profile this past week has probably been higher than it's ever been in his career. And so this this has to be talked about again. The ATP cannot be allowed to just brush it aside. Now, Roger Federer
1: makes his return to tennis after over a year. Something like 405 days or something like that. <laughs> Folks are very specific. Opened against Dan Evans, which is a tough, tough opener based on how Evans has been playing over the past year or so. Looked rusty, obviously, as is to be expected. 40-year-old coming back from surgery, a long layoff. But it felt like the serve really uh, really got him through. It was really dependable. The the Dan Evans thing, to circle back for a moment,
0: is a prime example of how winning in sport
1: will cure all ills. <laughs> right yes. like yes and we're not even talking about the cocaine thing
0: no if you're moralistic about doing recreational drugs then go at it with the cocaine angle but there's also the
1: the xenophobia against Bediné. yeah the pretty relentless mm-hmm. obsession with Bediné joining the UK Davis Cup team there's also
0: the complete lunacy of his comments on doubles players, targeted at Jamie Murray specifically. I mean, this dude, he's been a lot. He's been a very large pill mm-hmm. to take in his career. And so I saw a lot of folks. One very high-profile media person this past week saying something to the effect of, "Wow, he's not the story today, but
1: you just you just gotta love Dan Evans." <laughs> and I'm like, it's like what? hard hard not to like Dan Evans, and I mean. Maybe the there are tennis... few things easier for me. Oh, I know, right? Maybe the tennis world at large, like outside of tennis Twitter, can love Dan Evans, but the oh my God, the response to that tweet was uniformly negative.
0: It was such a weird flex.
1: But Federer was back
0: in his first match. The serve was like it just—it's like he he never left. The mm-hmm. serve was great. He was able to beat Dan Evans despite a little bit of rust from the ground, but. A fairly impregnable serve. And then Basilashvili, really, he just brought a lot of power, firepower, off the ground to Federer in that match, and he wasn't quite able to cope with it. Federer was supposed to go on to play Dubai. He had planned to do Doha and Dubai back-to-back. And then he said, you know, my plan was to do that, and I'm pretty pleased with how my body has responded to this challenge of playing on back-to-back days after... After so much time off, but I think the best course forward for me is to take some time off.
1: Yeah, and you know, Miami is coming up. Indian Wells was cancelled. We have a one big hardcore tournament left, and then we switch to clay. So a lot of players, I think, are weighing how important is it for me to play Miami if I can afford to skip it. Because it's going to take some preparation to get used to this clay season. It's also
0: am I really willing to leave where I am in the world to travel to Florida and then having to travel back somewhere else? Yeah. We're yeah. definitely seeing some COVID fatigue with the tennis players. At first it was like, oh my God, yes, we're back playing <laughs> tennis. This is amazing. Uh, give, I'm getting my life. And now, rightly so, I think it's understandable. Folks are... A little bit fatigued with having to go in and out of bubbles, keep a track of what the protocols are here, what the protocols are there. And the folks who are privileged enough to not have to do it, be it with money in the bank or ranking points in the bank, we're starting to see some folks take action.
1: Denis Shapovalov said recently he's just kind of getting tired of the bubble life and doesn't know if it's worth it for him to keep playing tennis in this uh, in this environment, which is fine. Like, when athletes make statements like this, they're always sort of treading on thin ice, right? Yes. Because it's understandable to not like this. Uh, and to, you know, if you can and you want to remove yourself, then do so. Um, but as always, it's
0: the wording of it, right? Right. The, these players, time and again, are not skilled at presenting their thoughts and ideas in, in a way... That will avoid backlash. You could easily say, I don't know what my schedule is going to look like going forward. I have to go back to the drawing board, talk to my my team, my family. It's been an emotionally and mentally taxing time to be a professional tennis player. And I, I'm just reassessing mm-hmm.
1: rather than sounding like you're complaining. Right. Because... Even if your complaints are legitimate, you're going to get a lot of backlash from people who have had it tougher
0: out here. Mm-hmm. What I don't like is when these complaints are tethered to a reduction in prize money. <laughs> yeah. Because
1: because it's like not, Y'all
0: it, are not the only ones out here struggling. The
1: tournaments are struggling as well. Right, because it's not like someone else is taking their share of prize money. It's that there are no ticket sales that... Tennis relies, probably over-relies, on ticket sales for revenue. And Andrea Gaudenzi mentioned that recently in something we'll get to later. But the tournaments are losing money. Many tournaments are probably at risk of closing permanently. The only people who aren't losing money are some of these big businesses who work as sponsors. Mm. And some of these players that Dennis Shaboval is one of
0: them, he could find tournaments that will give him an appearance fee. The majority of these tennis players can't. If you're planning your schedule now, there's still only a handful of tennis players who can command a substantial appearance fee to offset the loss in wages from prize money. And keep in mind too like you're not guaranteed to win any match. So to say right. that, you know, there's sixty percent lopped off at the top for the final, how many finals have you made in your career? This is not specific to Dennis, but mm-hmm. like nobody is guaranteed to win a round at a tennis tournament.
1: Right are you going to come all the way from Europe or South America to Miami and then lose in the first round? Yeah. Uh, you know, and go through this bubble every time. It, it kind of sucks. Like, so,
0: I mean, Federer is not going to do this, but if Federer wanted to, he could sign up for all the tournaments, collect all the appearance fees, <laughs> lose every single match, and still come out pretty right, decently, right. you know? like
1: there's a... <laughs> he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. <laughs> Elsewhere in Doha, Andre Rublev gets to the semifinals without winning a match. Unless you count walkovers as wins. Mm-hmm. He got <laughs> he got two walkovers in a row. He got a buy and then two walkovers mm-hmm. into the semis. He loses in straight sets to RBA. I keep saying RBA because I whenever I say his full name I call him Robert. Why do I call him Robert? And this is a new development. It is. Andre also got to play doubles with Karatsev and won. It's a pretty cool week for him.
0: Yeah, he got the bye and the two walkovers. But meanwhile, he was still getting some reps in on the doubles court. (laughs) It was as perfect. Well, I guess he made the semis in singles. If he had won singles as well, it would have been a perfect week. But, I mean, that's kind of ideal, given how much tennis he's played in the last few months. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are folks joking that, of course, he didn't win because it's not an ATP 500. (laughs) He vultures the 500s, but because it was a 250, Doha normally happening in January at the start of the year. And it's a tournament that RBA has won or made the final before. I think I'm pretty sure he beat Djokovic in Doha one year. But yeah, 250
1: and Rublev, not going to happen, apparently. (laughs) Fun fact, Ruby is ranked number 75 in doubles, which makes him the second highest ranked doubles player in the singles top 10. Diego Schwartzman is the the best doubles player at the moment in the the singles top 10. He's number 54. Uh, So it shows you how little and (laughs) how little and how unsuccessfully top players are playing doubles. Mm -hmm. Rublev also said that
0: he hasn't yet earned enough money to buy an apartment. Cites having to pay his team for five months without playing last year as one of the reasons for it. Of course, this spurred all this social media chatter about what kind of palatial apartment is Rublev trying to buy? How
1: much do apartments cost in Russia? And to which I say, just let the man be. Right. He paid his team for five months during the pandemic. Yeah. Good stuff.
0: We don't know what his budget is like. We don't know what his credit card situation is like. Maybe he is really
1: bad with money. How, or how many debts a, a young tennis player has to pay off mm-hmm. on on the way up. And maybe you don't want to just
0: settle for a $500,000 apartment that you feel you have to commit to for like five years before you buy something else. You want your first purchase to be
1: something nice, mm-hmm. you know? Maybe it's it could be like Drake's penthouse in Toronto. You know, like the St. Petersburg equivalent. In Dubai, the women were playing a WTA 1000. And finally, finally Garbinier breaks through because we've been talking on every episode this year about how great she's been playing how confident she's looked kind of until she reaches finals and that the breakthrough was bound to happen soon in the final she beats
0: barbara krachikova 7-6-6-3 it was the eighth wta title for the sixth on hard court the other two that weren't on hard courts though were notable yes they were a uh, french open title and a wimbledon title mm-hmm. It's also her first title since 2019, the Monterey event, which is going on this week. And it's her third final alone this year. She's the winningest player on tour. I believe her record is 18-4. and four. Mm-hmm. Two things about Muguruza that I want to mention here. One being, she gets a lot of mocking for only having won eight WTA titles. Mm-hmm. Every time she's in a final or she wins... This, this kind of comes up. Like, what, what? She's only won this number? And I get that it's surprising because Garbinia passes every single eye test. The people that she's beaten in slam finals, Serena Williams and Venus Williams. She is a player of high pedigree. But I want to push back and say, like, listen, we talked a couple episodes ago about how Petra Kavitova has 28 titles. And that was notable because it's unusual. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to win WTA titles. There are folks who litter their schedule with lower level events. And then these are the same folks who will say, Wow, look at that person vulturing titles. Right? Yep. Mogarutha is not somebody to be to be filling her schedule with 250s. You know, when once you've achieved a certain standing in tennis, you're expected to play at a certain level of event. There my point in saying that is that there are not a whole lot of opportunities to be vulturing WTA titles
1: at the higher level sure. of the game. Now, to be fair, Garbina has had stretches of puzzling play where her play didn't really live up to her talent. This is This is all to say that, yes, eight career titles is great, and I think she'll win a lot more. A good chunk of those are pretty important titles, but... You know, her her success on court hasn't always lived up to her potential. And I don't, I don't mean to be cruel in saying that. I'm saying that her talent is so huge that I think there's still a lot more to come. See, I just
0: don't know if we're going to see people winning five to ten titles a year anymore. Mm. I think part of the longevity of players' careers that we're seeing now is realizing that you don't have to play as much. Unless you're Kiki Burton's. Like The majority of the top players, I think, are scheduling better. There's more money in the game where you don't have to be chasing a paycheck or ranking points week to week. Naomi Osaka is not playing much tennis, like even before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Serena, like there's now a blueprint for players to maybe dial back. Muguruza is not in that category at the moment because she's been playing these tournaments yes. this year.
1: And with success.
0: Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say about Muguruza is that I had noticed within myself something growing as far as like a... I don't know if it was like a, a stand but just a curiosity about Muguruza this year. Her having to play Osaka in the fourth round in Australia and then watching a lot of her matches as she kept winning. And I was like, you know, there's something that endears me to her, but I can't quite pinpoint what it is. Part of it, of course, is having talked to her in press and getting like a sense of grown upness from that experience, mm-hmm. which is different from a lot of the the players that you talk to on tour, either tour. And then I realized that a lot of it has to do with the fact that Conchita is in her camp and the fact that her entire camp is a woman-led camp, mm-hmm. like her trainer, her coach, herself. Like that is the kind of energy that appeals to me,
1: along with the way that she carries herself and represents herself. Right. Garbina has always had this, like, bad bitch energy to her, but she seems a little bit more grown up now. She, you know, she lost in some of those finals, results that could have been very discouraging, and she just got back to it. The next week, she was back on the court winning matches again.
0: In Dubai, she gets Svantek in the round of 16, winning that match easily. Svantek could not center the ball on her racket that entire match And that win earned her a rematch with Savalenko, whom she had beaten the week before in Doha. So, like, these wins that she's having, I know a lot of folks have said, well, she hasn't beaten a top 10 player in so long, or, like, her opponents in the top 10 have been few and far between.
1: It's like, what is a top 10 player now? Exactly. Uh, How how is Shiontech not uh, a top Some of the
0: 10 to 25 players are tougher outs than... A lot of these top 10 players will get to Karolina Pliskova in a bit. Oh, wow. She beat Sabalenka again, this time after an impressive comeback. Sabalenka had blitzed through the first set, and then what was really cool was to see how Muguruza reset herself. And the way she reset herself was (laughs) keeping her calm. It wasn't that she changed anything drastically about her game. It's that she was able to assess the situation, see that Sabalenka was going for broke, all day, every day, and then that, and that, that wasn't likely sustainable. And there it was. Sabalenka just has one gear. It's I imagine if you're a fan of Sabalenka, it's absolutely maddening to watch <laughs> because she's literally firing bullets all over the court, taking balls off her hip where she's a little bit off balance. Somebody might have been jammed. By that serve, but Sabalenka is just slightly shimmying out of the way and rifling a forehand return winner down the line at a rate of knots. Like, it's it's crazy the type of power that she's able to display on court, but when
1: that doesn't go right for her, it is spectacularly bad. Yeah, uh, we've seen this in other players before. Uh, You've called it, like, the kitchen sink approach, the... The refrigerator, washing the machine, water, the microwave, ironing board, throwing everything out there. Uh, but there's not really much of a plan B, right? One of our mutuals on Twitter, Trini Bev, said pl- her plan B is like plan A but harder.
0: <laughs> like she's clearly found something that works for her. She's won a bunch of tournaments. She's able to rein that in and or keep that going to, to a point where, you know, it's manageable for her within a match. But we've talked about how there's so many players on the WTA who have a lot of power. Most recently we talked about it with Clara Towson and that she has all the power tools in her box. But will she be able to diversify her game? It's tough to see Sabalenka being a world beater on a consistent basis without doing
1: something different. With Towson, she and her coach both know that they need to work on variety and that's what they're doing very consciously. Now the runner-up to Garbine, Barbora Krejcikova, has been building to something pretty big in singles over the past few months. You probably know her as a former world number one in doubles, she's won five slams, two in women's doubles, three in mixed, and it seemed like she was going to continue her career as a sometimes singles player but mostly a doubles specialist, someone who really excelled. And Since Roland Garros, I mean, she reached the round of 16 at Roland Garros, beating Pironkova, made the semi at Linz, beat Rybakina at the Grampians Trophy in Australia, and now reached the final here. And the win, these are quality wins, right? Beating Sakari, Ostapenko, Jill Teichman. Teichman for the second time in the course of a few months. So basically Jill
0: Teichman does not want to see Barbora Krejcikova or...
1: Kokogov again the rest of the season. <laughs> right. As you just pointed out to me, Koko Goff beat her twice this year, and Teichmann won their third match already in March. From the WTA, Krejcikova is one of the four players in the top 50 of singles who also have a top 10 doubles ranking, and the others are Sabalenka, Martins, and Striceva. You see quite a difference between the WTA and the ATP. Still not a ton of top singles players excelling at doubles, which is obvious. You know, that's a a long trend.
0: But we're seeing a lot of rematches this year.
1: Yeah, it feels like a small
0: small pool. Yeah, it's a traveling circuit of the same pool of players. At the end of last year, there were these smaller WTA events, and it was quite, (laughs) it was almost carbon copy draws. The same players just moving from one city to the next. Mm -hmm. It makes sense in a pandemic, right? But that means that we've had the potential for the same players playing each other a lot. Muguruza playing Sabalenka back-to-back weeks. Taikman playing Krejcikova so many times, playing Goff so many times. In Dubai, Karolina Pliskova had the great misfortune, a journey which she did not enjoy, ultimately. <laughs> the Middle East swing, Doha into Dubai, because she played Jessica Pegula twice. And in both matches, was absolutely lumberjacked. Like that umpire's chair. Yeah, this time six love six two. And then in Doha it was six three six one.
1: Yeah. Like this is. I mean, how do you not be alarmed by
0: this if you're Plishkova? Well, I'm sure there
1: are some discussions going on on her team. People are quick to blame the coach. Obviously, everybody likes to poke fun at her new coach. And listen,
0: when you have a coach, and in her case, she has one of those who likes to publicize himself based on the results of his pupil. Who likes to write books based on the success of his pupil then it it, it it follows it goes to reason that when your pupil has spectacular losses embarrassing losses even then that should reflect on you as well
1: okay this swing has been like a Ryan Murphy production it's like oh there's Sarah Paulson again there's Jessica Lang again oh my God. in season seven WJ <laughs> horror story <laughs> yes. well that starring Carolina Pli. <laughs> Okay, so in Marseille, Daniil Medvedev was already going to rise to number two, but he uh, put a cap on it by winning the title in Marseille, beating Pierre-Hugues Herbert. This is one of those tournaments
0: where you almost always see some Frenchies rising.
1: Mm -hmm. Montpellier is one of them, Marseille is another one, Lyon. Herbert, like Krejcikova, someone better known for his doubles results had these big wins over Tsitsipas, Umber, Nishikori, then reaches the final and plays a long three-set match against Medvedev. After that final, in his speech, Daniil said to the umpire, Fergus Murphy, honestly, great job. When I'm on the court, I can be a bad guy. And my reaction was like, well, maybe just stop? If you always have to apologize for your behavior, maybe just don't do it. I had this experience at work recently where... There are like certain people who will blow up and yell at you for a while. And then they're like, it's not you, it's not you. You know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't yell, at you. I shouldn't take this out on you. And I'm like, well, maybe just don't because it's repeated behavior. This was also the tournament where Petro Tsitsipas received that
0: inherited wild card. Losing his first match, Love
1: 6-2-6 to Davidovich Fokino. was not pretty. I actually was not going to bring this up until you showed me what Stephanos said about the situation. Well,
0: it's only on the agenda because of what Stephanos said. Mm. After the match, Stephanos comes to his brother's defense about the wildcard situation. This is via Vicky Giorgiatu, I hope I pronounced that properly. Following up with Stephanos, he said to her, I want to say it because there is unfair criticism about the wildcard. I get it, but when they give you a wild card, it's hard to retire. And this was tacking on to him saying that Petros has been struggling with a wrist
1: injury the last two years, and that he needs to have surgery soon. it uh, was a weird quote, right it, it didn't actually make the the situation any better. I think it actually made it quite a bit worse because he yeah. was saying that his brother is struggling with an injury, he needs to get surgery, and he might retire. But it's hard to say no to the repeated wild cards. Mm -hmm. Like Like, you, (laughs) you
0: you can finance him while he's recovering. There's no hardship in putting it off. It's not like you're waiting to earn money to then afford this stuff, right? It's so strange because then the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, that makes it worse. Well, yeah. Because why are you taking up a spot when you know that you're injured? You, I watched that match, and some of his ground strokes were piss poor. Now, if that is if the returning is that bad and the ground strokes are that bad because of injury, like it's... I, I just don't get it.
1: I don't mm. understand it. Yeah, I mean, you take a wild card to build experience and sort of build your career to get better, you know. But if he's planning on just dipping and getting surgery, it's it's weird. Joe Wilfried Tsonga, are we allowed to call his name on the, the podcast has now? has ended
0: a long time ago. A <laughs> long time.
1: <laughs> he has not won a match since November 2019 but he won his first round match in Marseille last week against Feliciano Lopez. Joe is 35. Feliciano is 39. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought Feliciano was retiring, but he, he keeps playing.
0: No, well, the reason why you think that is because he's become the tournament director in Madrid. And you
1: assumed... <laughs> Which is a blatant you, conflict. When of I interest. say
0: you, I mean we and all of you probably assumed that that meant he was transitioning out of the game. Doesn't seem to be
1: the case. <laughs> It was great to see Joe back on court. He uh, he just seemed to be really grateful to be there. He lost to Umber in the next round. And then today in Dubai, he injured himself in the first set and had to retire. So
0: the good and the bad news keeps on coming Yeah, with Mr. Songa. In Guadalajara, we saw the potential rebirth of Jeannie Bouchard. She's had good results in the last little bit. But a, a win, a title in this fashion where she wouldn't have had all these long, drawn-out affairs, three-set matches, a title that would have been fairly convincing up until getting to that final would have been a statement win for Bouchard. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like she was well aware of that, because when things were going awry in that first set against Sorribes Tormo, she took, she just took that racket and whacked the almighty crap out of the court. Did you see that? I, d- I sure did. Yep. <laughs> as much as I said, you know, WTA titles are hard to win with respect to talking about Muguruza earlier, I am now going to say that it's kind of wild that Bouchard only has one WTA title in her career.
1: It Yeah, it is surprising. I will give
0: you that. She has some big results. Big results. And then the precipitous fall. And then that required her building her game back on the lower levels of the tour. Mm-hmm.
1: Which, so she's had a lot of respect for that.
0: Yes. But but she's had more opportunities in draws that were probably easier to win than, say, a Muguruza, is what I'm saying. Oh. That, that's yeah. what makes it more surprising to me that she's only had one mm-hmm.
1: in her career. Sara Soribos Tormo is 24 years old and has just won her first singles title. I believe she's she was also up
0: six love, four love against Sabalenka somewhere, ended up losing that match. So this mm-hmm. is
1: it's nice to see that she's put that behind her. Yeah. Down in South America, in Chile, we're still on clay, part of this Latin American clay slash hardcore swing that happens in February and March. This is your tournament. Not only
0: is the winner <laughs> your kind of winner, but the title of the, the tournament, the name of the tournament, you are living for it.
1: What, This is the Dove Men Plus Care Open. Do you pronounce the plus?
0: I, I do not know.
1: Mm-hmm. I, and you really told don't. me there is a whole retinue of tournaments branded uh, Dove Mencare. Yeah, I
0: haven't been able to research this enough before we came to
1: record, but
0: last I saw before we started recording was there's going to be a whole swing of events that are going to be Dove plus Mencare open.
1: Mm-hmm. The, the So down in the Chile Dove Mencare Ivory Soap Bar open, Christian Garín gets his fifth career title defeating Bagnus in three sets. Garin actually had no win so far this year. He, uh, you know, he is a fave of mine. I really enjoy him. Now you enjoy for, looking at like, him. For several reasons. You enjoy looking at him. Uh, he played... Do you even know if he plays right or left hand? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you. He did play before Australia, but he hurt his wrist in the Middle East and didn't end up traveling to Australia. This tournament also featured Holger Rune making his first ATP quarterfinal. Mm-hmm. Danish
0: tennis is just on an, an incredible upswing with these two youngsters, Clara Towson and then Holger Ruhn. Um, the future is very bright. Also at this tournament, Benoit Pair lost. To Rune. Yeah. And after that match, he <laughs> went on Instagram and said, quote, The ATP circuit has become sad, boring, and ridiculous. Playing in stadiums, behind closed doors, without any atmosphere. That's not why I play... It's become a tasteless profession. I'm going to make an effort to try to just get back to the fun of playing tennis. No, sir, <laughs> sir, everything that I've seen about you post-quarantine, be it your results, your behavior on court, your antics, are exactly what I've seen from you when there were fans in the stadiums. Right. Like, I don't understand. You
1: got COVID in the U.S. Open. People were exposed to you. They got thrown out of the tournament. Your friend Kiki Mladenovic was big mad about it. You were out partying after you lost last week. Right. Spit on the court last week. Endless complaining. I would have liked to see an Oxford comma in sad, boring, and ridiculous, but to be fair, I do not know if you use the Oxford comma in French. That is a minor quibble. That is the height of
0: (laughs) pretension just now.
1: Yes. As we said earlier, if this career sucks for you during COVID and you have the ability not to play, then don't play. I I don't doubt that it sucks. You know, if you're someone who likes to play for crowds, this is it feels very spare and probably very boring. And I get it. Mm-hmm. But uh this is not someone who I would really give the benefit of the doubt to anymore. Imagine being
0: alive in twenty twenty-one. Being a tennis fan and still giving a shit about what Benoit Paire has to say. (laughs) Or even having the stomach to watch him play tennis. Like, could not, could not be me. We're going to finish up the episode with a few odds and ends and let you get started with this T7
1: working group that we learned about this week. We're going to start with something I love, tennis governance. There was a Wire story published earlier this week, which read a lot like a press release announcing the creation of something called the T7 Working Group, which is a group of the seven governing bodies in tennis, which are made up of the ATP, WTA, the Four Slams, and the ITF. And this group is going to start discussions in March on the governance of the sport. So their their mandate is extremely broad. ATP CEO Andrea Gaudenzi did most of the speaking about the T7 Working Group. He said things like governance, calendar, the synergies in commercial media distribution, data rights, sponsorship, everything is on the table mm-hmm. to be discussed among the seven governing bodies. In theory, this is amazing news. It's, like, this it's is, it very
0: interesting. This is what we know that tennis is in need of. Centralized governance. Mm-hmm. And so we'll see how this plays out, whose interests get privileged over others. I hear this news and I just think of Bigita Newberg
1: in... Borgen,
0: <laughs> around the negotiating table.
1: Uh, if you have not watched Danish political drama Borgen, highly recommend it. The fact that this came out on the wires and it read like a press release makes me think that the discussions have probably been ongoing already. You know, the the planning to even come together as seven different bodies with varying interests is, a, is an achievement in itself. Mm-hmm. But COVID has forced tennis to realize they need to find revenue streams that are not strictly based on ticket sales. They need to find ways to build up stores of cash to weather storms like this. Mm -hmm. You know, only Wimbledon was prepared with that pandemic insurance. But what if something else happens? Do you, as the ATP,
0: sacrifice some of your interests in the short term to ensure a more stable product, long term, making some concessions to the WTA? That you don't necessarily feel are warranted, but knowing that the net result would be a unified sport where everybody is able to come through a situation like this better right. later on. Like um, It's about seeing the forest for the trees. <laughs> not being blinded by the Isners and the Apelkas
1: of the world. Not, but being able to oh, see past the trees. It, mm-hmm. You know, the full forest. CEOs love to look look for efficiencies. So if the ATP and the WTA can bargain together for things like distribution for for TV rights, where where both are currently lacking, you know that might be a powerful way to bring in revenue. Who knows? They they plan on having biweekly meetings over the next six to nine months. That is a big commitment.
0: Mm-hmm. Right now it's just a wire story, which, as you said, is basically a press release, so we'll mm-hmm. see. There hasn't been any
1: investigative journalism into this. Right. One thing that Gaudensi said that I really, really liked was that he said that so many fans of tennis are not privileged to attend our events in person. And mm-hmm. it was a nice acknowledgement that there is an inequality in who gets to go. The you know The difficulty of following tennis on cable and streaming and all this stuff really hurts for people who can't even go to an event in person if they wanted to. This odds and end...
0: This odd and end? (laughs) Which is it? Anyway, this little bit is not on the agenda, but it's timely, it's just happened, and I feel the need to speak on it. Can we all just pretend like Sloane Stevens is not playing tennis right now? I swear to God. If I see one more person mocking her, or making fun of her, or lamenting her losses... Like, she isn't going through
1: all of it, still. Like, life is not normal for Sloan yeah, Stevens yeah. right now. So just leave Brittany alone. Yep. Like, she's been through some shit. Demir Jumor was disqualified yesterday in Acapulco. He was playing a match versus Botage van de Zanschop from the Netherlands. Demir was pissed over a ball that he thought was long from his opponent. This was at deuce and 5-all in the first set he would get broken to 5-6. Demir yelled at the umpire over the call, got a code violation. In the next game, he screamed a little bit more, got another code violation, which escalated to a point penalty, and absolutely loses his mind at the umpire. It was really difficult to decipher what was actually being said on the video feed. And the sequence of how things happened. Because it was initially reported that
0: Demir told the umpire he was going to kill him, and that's why he was defaulted. But it appears that it may have happened after he had already decided to quit the match.
1: Yeah, so the tournament and the ATP can punish a player for things that happen after a match. We don't know, and I see journalists have been very hesitant to cover exactly what was said, because it was quite difficult to make out what was said. Some people on Twitter accused him of saying what what you just said that I, I don't really want to repeat. But it was bad. even without the language, after the match, he kind of stepped to the umpire aggressively several times. His opponent, van der Zchop just walked off the court. <laughs> like he's like, I am not having any of this, removed himself from the situation. Schumer claims in his Instagram post that he left the match voluntarily and it's not a default. Regardless of what he thinks, the ATP has marked it as a default. It's a disqualification. It doesn't matter if a player has voluntarily forfeited a match. It's a disqualification. He's been
0: subsequently fined $6,500, lost his prize money for that event. He'll be investigated under the ATP's major offense provision. This would probably fall under aggravated behavior or conduct contrary to the integrity of the game. If it were severely damaging to the ATP's reputation, Mm -hmm. of course, hitting rackets on the court, damaging the court, being rude to the umpire, being threatening to the umpire, being disrespectful to your opponent, all those things are punishable by the ATP, but not allegations (laughs) of sexual assault or domestic violence.
1: Right. But so all of these sort of misbehaviors on court have fines associated with them. This provision the major offense provision in the ATP rulebook, can look at those behaviors if they're elevated. It's kind of like a flagrant foul, right? You can do the same thing, but if that particular behavior is so egregious, is so aggravated, then they might choose to punish you under this provision. Mm -hmm. They
0: have all these provisions and finable offenses on the books, right? What we're asking for is for the ATP to have domestic violence, accusations being wrapped up in court cases as one of their finable offenses. (laughs) Right. So this is something different. And it is, it is. But the point is folks are saying, well, it's not covered by anything on the ATP. Well, yeah, that's the point. And also it can be covered by the ATP proactively. mm -hmm. We've seen it in other sports. And part of that, folks are saying, well, we have to wait till it's decided by a court No, the ATP has the power, like other professional sports, to conduct their own investigations and levy fines, punishments based on those investigations that are not tied to actual legal proceedings. Right. So can we put that to rest once and for all?
1: The rules have been written very broadly, I think, on purpose, but I think the ATP is worried that actions they take will not be enforceable, even if they're already in their policies. Mm-hmm. Back to Jumor though, if you know the investigation rules that he has committed a major offense, it can result in a fine up to $25,000 or, and or a suspension anywhere from 21 days to a year. So we'll keep an eye on that. I think the ATP must know a bit more about what was said on court that we couldn't hear, Mm -hmm. which I think is why this probably got escalated. I know you do not want to mention Alexander Zverev's name on this podcast ever again. No, I'd like to excise him from
0: it. But this is worth mentioning. This week he was quoted as saying, I am the biggest Roger Federer fan, but he has not played for a year and is ranked higher than me. I played a Grand Slam final, a Masters 1000 final. The system is just a disaster. Now...
1: (sighs) This is coming off the heels of Federer, talking about all the great young guys coming up, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, All the young guys who won the
0: ATP finals and conveniently skimmed. He he did not mention He lumped him into an etc.
1: category. So this could have been on purpose or by accident, but of course people notice these things. Regardless, our perspective
0: is that, that the rankings freeze was a good thing. To a point, I think I'm at the position now where points need to start falling off.
1: Yeah, it's not per. It's certainly not perfect. Ash Barty is still world number one by a good margin, mm-hmm. and has played very, very little over the last year. We saw that the ATP has extended
0: their rankings tweaks through Cincinnati of this year, whereby it's going to be your result this year or fifty percent of the result of a tournament from 2019 that was not played last year. Yeah. Quite convoluted, (laughs) but they're still, they're putting in added measures to protect rankings. The WTA has not done that. And I, I don't see how, you see, there's a conflation happening here because Zverev says this and it makes it seem like what, where we are now is wrapped up in what's to come with the provisions when it's not like this was all known From like almost a year ago. Yeah. Right? Like we're at the point now heading into what would have been Indian Wells, what will be Miami, where points should start to fall off. Like that's that's when the argument Mm -hmm. can be made. Federer's ranking was protected as was so many other people
1: for a reason. Right. Federer's still number six. Zverev has had a good stretch, but we're essentially working on a two-year ranking system. And we've players have proposed a two-year ranking system, namely Rafa Nadal, and we've talked about the virtues and the flaws of that. This is obviously a, a unique time to be a tennis player. The rankings have always, uh, out of necessity, included some measure of subjectivity, mm-hmm. right? This isn't a scientific uh, ruling on who is the best.
0: And it becomes a little bit see-through and transparent when your argument is so self-serving. It's not even that you're saying, well, I won two slams and look at me. Where, where am I? I'm floundering. Like, no, you had two cute results.
1: Like, and nobody
0: wants to be hearing from you right now. But
1: unfortunately, his results before that weren't that great. Yeah. And if they were, his ranking would be higher.
0: Like, just just go away. <laughs> I believe last episode or the one before we mentioned that Kim Clysters had accepted wild cards into Miami and Charleston. She has since said that she will not be playing either tournament. She issued a statement saying, In October, I had surgery on my right knee to repair damage sustained over my career and to reduce pain. I'm
1: not even sure I knew that. Uh, I feel like we knew it at one point and forgot.
0: Results following surgery were good. Rehab and recovery went well, and I was feeling really positive. As you've heard, I had COVID in January, and while the symptoms were mild, it did disrupt my training schedule. I've had an intensive few weeks of training with my team. Unfortunately, I'm not where I need to be, especially if I want to compete with the best. It's disappointing and frustrating. I knew this was going to be hard when I started this journey, and there have been challenges that are out of my control. I'm not ready to quit. I'm going to keep pushing and see what's possible. I'm going to undergo some pain management treatment for the next three to six weeks and then regroup with my team and see what's next. That's the part that was a little bit confusing yeah, for me. Yeah, it
1: doesn't feel particularly encouraging. No. It sounds
0: like you had the surgery and there's still like quite a bit of pain mm. associated with that.
1: Because uh, pain management phrases it that the pain is always going to be there. You yeah. just have to learn how to deal with it. Remember that Kim is a player who dealt with some very serious injuries through her career. She played a lot, but in, I think it was 2005, she came back from a wrist surgery... That could have been career ending and went on an absolute tear on hard courts in the spring and summer. But she had some major injuries that interrupted her career. She retired twice. Her scheduling after her retirement was very sparse and successful, but there is a ton of wear and tear on that body. And at her age, I think you're generally going to be playing with pain regardless. Mm -hmm. Roger has spoken about it. It's whether you're willing to uh, play with pain and manage it. We shall see. We got news this week that, well,
0: late last week, that Andy Murray would not be playing in Dubai. And when you read that first sentence, you're like, oh my God, what's going on? What, what's the injury? How is the hip? And so that quickly, with the quickness, pivoted to a multitude of jokes about how his metal hip is working real well. <laughs> Because unbeknownst to anybody, Kim Sears has given birth to a fourth Murray child.
1: do we know? It doesn't seem like anybody knew. Okay. I feel like the Murray fanatics must have known. I It, it came I as a surprise see, to listen, me. Listen, when something
0: like this happens, there's always somebody who's like, well, I knew. <laughs> and here's the tweet where I said, I knew. I told you all, I am the top of the mountain
1: mm. in this situation. I didn't see any of that. It's it is pretty easy to hide a pregnancy during COVID, you know, if if you're just staying around the house. Mm. And she already has three kids. And if
0: you're not one to be, just overcome by a need, to present yourself on social media twenty four seven, if you're fine with just reading a book in the in the
1: nook in the window, on your little, chaise lounge, you know. We saw their beautiful house in the documentary. Uh, Congratulations to the Murray family. With your beautiful Scottish English children. Speaking of children. Taylor Townsend gave birth to a beautiful baby boy named Aidan Aubrey. I gotta wonder if that's after Drizzy Drake, Six God, (laughs) Aubrey. I I do like that name. Yeah. Um, Congratulations to her. Yeah, she was
0: keeping us updated. Speaking of somebody who we knew was pregnant. We knew Taylor Townsend was pregnant because she gave us updates right up to the delivery room. In the delivery room. She's like, hey, about to, Hey, it's about, coming. bunch pop one out. See you soon. She was on the tennis courts practicing with her big bump right up until the end.
1: Yes. So congrats to the Townsend family, to the Murray family.
0: No, I I did not put this on the, on the agenda. And the timing of you putting this on the agenda to close the episode is very suspicious to me. You oh, have so here what? things we like slash dislike. Mm-hmm. And I just know that you have Grammy on your mind.
1: No, so I put this on here because I didn't know if we were going to have enough content for really? an episode. Obviously, we did. Whenever there's uh, something pop culture, you put this on the on the agenda. Yeah, no, it was actually, I put it on there because I wanted to talk about Below Deck. Okay, my, that's so, what I was going to talk so about. So my father recommended Below Deck, and he was like, oh, it's a reality show, it's on Bravo, it's about yachting. And the staff on a yacht. And I'm like, what the f- what the hell? And he's like, no, trust me. Just watch it. And we have watched three seasons <laughs> within the span of several days. It is so addicting mm-hmm. and entertaining. And as people who have worked in service before, it, uh, it's also emotionally gripping. Mm-hmm. Because you really, really root for people who work in service.
0: It took me back to my days as an orientation leader in college. Mm. The parallels are so... Stark, if you've been to school, to college or university in the States. Mm-hmm. You like may, Caroline, have you been to school? <laughs> you may be familiar with the orientation programs whereby incoming freshmen travel to the, to the school during the summer and participate in a three-day orientation. Mm-hmm.
1: It is a lot. And for introverts, the enthusiasm can be very uh, distressing. The things that I had to do for money
0: in college, <laughs> let me tell you, I was an RA for seven of eight semesters, and I did orientation during the summers twice. I Was it three? At least two, I did it. And it brought back so many memories because everything is so heightened during that one little spell, mm. you know, and you're just going, 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 you work for like 20 hours in a row. And then you have to come back and do it again the next day. And then you get a day off and you feel like you have an entire week off. And you get paid and you go blow your money on some extravagant purchase. My big extravagance was a Canon camera one summer. Oh, make every shot a power shot. I did, yeah. I bought a camera. This would have been like 2008. So it was a digital 2008 or 2009 digital camera. Mm. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. In retrospect, like it had a shelf life of
1: maybe... Two years before becoming obsolete. Wow. We didn't know that smartphones like, were around the corner. The
0: hoops you had to jump through to get those pictures accessible. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. Plug <laughs> plug the USB into your computer and hope it downloads. Mm-hmm. But
0: then you, you meet the cast, your fellow co- co- co-workers. You spend all this time with them. You become romantically interested in people whom you would never even <laughs> give a second thought to. Under regular circumstances, you have fights, things become heated. You have the bosses who pretend to be your friends, who really are there to chew you out for the, the slightest thing. And the the <laughs> parts that I love are the the meetups with the captain, in um, after to get the get the money, mm-hmm. right, get the tip. And he's like, "Well, this charter went really well, but here are the, the ways that it could have been better." And like that happened all the time. You you just want to just behead the captain in that situation. Wow. wow. Yeah, because, like, it's so emotionally taxing and you feel like you did a good job. you like, I worked is. really, really hard. Yeah, while my boss, Sharon something, was in the office making, like, two appearances all weekend and just being a figurehead, we were actually getting the job done, you know?
1: <laughs> <sighs> so Below Deck, awesome. You mentioned the Grammys. I actually... So I didn't actually watch the Grammys because you're a tyrant when mm-hmm. it comes to award shows. And I'm going to... I'm going to stop tiptoeing around you because this was actually an event. I watched uh, um, an extra legal version of the Grammys the next day. And I feel they did a very good job at putting together a show. They packaged a bunch of performances together. So you got to see artists uh, in the wings sort of appreciating other artists, Mm. which I loved Billie Eilish watching Harry Styles and Haim and all these people at the Grammy, the best part of the Grammys for me are performances because I've discovered a lot of people who I really, really like. So, you know, watching SZA or her on the Grammys a few years ago made me go and buy their albums. Right. The awards, but this would uh, that's been, a whole other thing. This would have
0: been the first show in, what, 15 years that was actually good and interesting to watch? <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather no, take mean, my chances with Below Deck instead.
1: Right. Sometimes you get some surprising performances in genres that you're not that interested in. Mm. It's It can be an exciting show. And I think they did a pretty good job in the circumstances. The awards are going to be problematic always. They're puzzling. Album of the Year, fine. Like, I haven't heard folklore, but I hear from people it's a masterpiece. I'm personally not a fan of Miss Smith. Uh, but... Miss Smith? Taylor Smith. <laughs> But I'm not. I'm not even mad about that. Honestly, I'm annoyed that record of the year and song of the year. Uh, I don't really get it. Just big up to Megan the Stallion, who to me was really the star yeah. of the show. Was the big winner of the show, best new artist, best rap song with and Beyonce. And her performance
0: with Cardi B was <laughs> absolutely batshit.
1: It was <laughs> insert any adjective. Mm-hmm. But. It is—it's frustrating to repeatedly see the genre awards, the R&B and rap awards go to black artists, and the big awards go to repeat white winners. You know, mm. the the safe winners. I don't doubt that these people are talented, but it's—it's it's just really frustrating because the people you're talking about the next day who really make the show what it is are Megan, Cardi, Beyonce didn't even perform. And she was all over the headlines, right? Mm. Um, the Grammys relies on black creativity, but refuses to give it the big awards.
0: The other thing I've enjoyed is watching all three seasons of Borgen. You've mentioned that earlier mm. in the episode. We've, we decided to start watching it before we even learned that there's a, a fourth season in the works that mm-hmm. will debut next year sometime. Like seven years later, uh-huh. right? And Vegeta is supposed to be back in it, as well
1: as Katrina. Yes, who uh, she you may know she had a recurring role on Game of Thrones. She was as in Pitch did, Perfect um, too. Yeah, as did Kaspar Yule, who well, that's his character, but he played I don't remember his name on Game of Thrones, but Cersei's final love interest. Yeah, this the seafaring you know that yeah. guy. Anyway,
0: it was inter- it was a, a show about some very mundane stuff. That became very interesting. Yes.
1: It was a, like a Danish West Wing, but a lot more grounded in parliamentary procedure, you know? And you come to learn or be
0: reminded that moderate politics in other parts of the world are not moderate our, politics
1: <laughs> in this side of the basically world. basically left wing in the U.S.
0: Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis underscore John.
1: My name is James. I'm at Elliot J M R on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. We, the podcast, are at The Body Serve on Twitter and Instagram and on, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all those. If you've enjoyed
0: the show and if you've been meaning to do so but haven't gotten to it yet, please give us a review, especially on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Till next time.
1: Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you very much.